Welcome to the Asia Climate Finance Podcast, where our host and his guest discuss and evaluate climate business and climate finance issues and trends. Please support us by liking and subscribing to the podcast. Also, please note the disclaimers at the end of the show. Here is your host, investor analyst and author, Joseph Jacobelli. Welcome to episode 39 of the Asia Climate Finance Podcast. And happy and healthy 2024 to all the listeners. Today we're talking about something which is pretty close to my heart, which is corporates and the energy transition. Now, corporates play a crucial role in driving the energy transition. Their role is absolutely key to accelerating change in addressing the pressing climate change challenges. It is critical for corporates to formulate transition strategies beyond climate risk and other types of reporting. It's a very tough hurdle given all of this is very, very new. Today our guest is Sama Chan, who is a principal consultant with ERM, a leading multinational consultancy firm. Sama works with corporates on the strategy front, amongst other things. And in the episode, first Sama puts transition in Asia into context. Then she offers several key takeaways from her COP28 visit. She then discusses how corporates approach transition strategies, including a few examples. And finally, she shares some thoughts on her long-term outlook. Please enjoy the show. Hello again, and uh, welcome to the Asia Climate Finance Podcast. And today we have a guest from ERM, who's a principal consultant there, Summer Chan. Hello, Summer. How are you? Hi, Joseph. Thanks so much for having me. Hello, everyone. Happy New Year. Not sure if yes, I can happy, still say Happy New Year of two weeks. So. I, think, I think we can still say Happy New Year. Okay. I think that, uh, it's always a good greeting. So happy and healthy New Year to you as well. Summer, uh, I wanted to start uh, by asking you perhaps to tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, we've got your bio on the show notes, but uh, mm-hmm. I think, you know, maybe some words from uh, about your, your background from yourself it would be great. Happy to. I actually began my career in climate change back in 2015 when I joined the UNDP as an intern. So my role back then is to promote the, the SDGs. Yeah, that, that's the SDGs, um, which used to be called MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals, with only eight goals. And then the UN upgrade to 17 goals, and they are a bit worried whether this too aggressive call for companies' adoption. Um, but glad we managed to pull that through. And now SDG become one of the most used frameworks by com- companies. And mm. after that, in 2016, I think I joined the, the UK government Foreign Commonwealth Office working on climate mm. change and energy policy. And this is actually where I start to get interested in the energy transition uh, in the post-Paris Agreement era, I would say. And then mm. I get to get involved in a number of areas like offshore wind, power sector reform, climate risk, green finance, hydrogen, shale gas, and even CCUS, which back then mm. still not as a hot topic as it is today. About two and a half years ago, in 2021, I, I left the um, British consular 
and joined the ERM based in Hong Kong and started to work more closely with, with corporates and business to support the low carbon transition journey. La. So this is quite rewarding, if I'm being honest. So, yeah, mm, here mm, I am. Mm. Um, and just um, to, to follow up on that, what, what exactly do you do all day? What does a principal consultant for ERM does? And maybe, maybe you can mention a couple of words on on uh-huh. ERM first because you know some people may not may not be that familiar. Yeah, just uh, for the benefit of people who haven't heard about ERM before, we are actually the largest global pure play sustainability consultancy. So when people talk about sustainability in the past decade, we've been actually doing this for more than 50 years. So we've been partnered with all the different organizations, companies supporting their low carbon transition. And if you type in um, www sustainability.com actually that's the website for our sustainability institute which is our kind of a think tank and our platform for employees to share the sole leadership on sustainability so mm. um for for me i've been uh, with uh, one of the team called corporate sustainability in a climate change team cscc team and we deliver a wide range of projects basically supporting companies at all stages of their esg journey from like developing a net zero or ESG strategy, implementing any emission reduction measures or deploying any low carbon technology. So basically everything, we're doing it all. Mm. Uh, for me, my personal interest or, or my area specialties are around climate and nature and how these two topics really interface with each other. So a lot of my day-to-day work is actually on um, climate scenario analysis, so looking into the future and how this world might look like in 20, 2030 or 2050 under different scenarios like low carbon or high carbon scenarios and how we are going to be impacted and whether we have the resilience to adapt. So that's quite interesting because at the end of the day, it's it's not just about uh, emission reduction or or energy transition. It's more mm. about how to enable a human-centric just transition and how to um, take into consideration of both nature, people, and climate, right? How to live, live hopefully in harmony with nature. So, yeah, I guess I'm very lucky. I get to do things I really like and happen to be, I'd say, quite good at, yeah. Mm-mm-mm. That's that that that's really really excellent, and uh, it's quite interesting to hear from you about you know the fact that you're actually dealing with corporates day in and day out, mm. and all of the um, and I think we later on in the conversation, if you don't mind, we could dig in a little bit more into this. Um, but before that, um, I know that very recently you had a very uh, wouldn't call it stressful, but very, very busy and hectic trip uh, to COP twenty eight. Um, right. <laughs> so uh, no, I wasn't. Talking, I wasn't talking about the hectic holidays. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, could could you tell us um, a little bit? Uh, you know, what are some of your takeaways mm-hmm. for corporates in Asia from COP twenty eight? Well, there's so many takeaways. Let me uh, let me try to be selective. I think the key one is about the old energy system transformation. So uh, you probably see this from the news already. A very clear message 
sent from the COP28 is to transition away from fossil fuel, uh, which is really the tax added hours before it's finalized, but not as good as phase out, the wording phase out, of course, but still have very strong implications for corporates to get prepared for more stringent policy and regulations to reduce fossil fuel. And there's other um, commitments like um, the launch of the oil and gas decarbonization charter. I don't remember exactly how many companies committed and endorsed the, the near zero um, methane, methane emissions. Uh, so, so you can see this is like there's a growing pressure uh, from more ambitions and faster actions um, from all the different industries, especially for uh, heavy heavy industries. Yeah. Mm. Another one is to um, build the new energy system of tomorrow. Uh, you probably see the news also like the, the about the tripling of renewables pledges uh, made by over 100 countries to double the energy efficiency and a triple up renewable capacity by 2030. And this would mean for corporates, they need to maximize their efforts to get the low-hanging fruits, uh, enhance energy efficiency and tripling up renewables uh, by 2030, but at the same time to accelerate the other uh, clean energy technologies like hydrogen or energy storage. So that's that's around how to build a new energy system. And I think that mm. would uh, be very crucial for, for corporates moving forward um, in the medium and long term. And if I may, um, if I can still add on another sure. one, I think will be, uh, like I said before, how to incorporate like climate, nature and people as part of the just transition to a low carbon economy because there's so many discussion around nature this year, not just in the context of um, how nature-based solutions can capture carbon emissions or mm. generate carbon credits, but also how it can benefit the indigenous people uh, or the local communities or even um, secure the food. Um, so for example, um, farmers in Australia and Scotland, if I remember correctly, they can own land and they can earn carbon credits with farming. So once the credits got verified and you can trade the credits in the carbon market. So in the future, mm. farmers maybe can become traders and getting mm. their revenue streams from there. So this is how our lives I would imagine that we'll get disrupted in so many different ways. And you like you not, you will need to get prepared. That That's my main observation and key takeaways, I would say. M moving to a, a different um, different line of, of discussion, can we talk about, you know, corporate's transition strategies specifically? Because at the end of the day, that's kind of like core to to, to your activities, your, your your team's activities. Now, looking at 30,000 feet, um, what are corporates in Asia supposed to do um, just at a very high level, you know? Mm, this is a very good question. Um, I actually have clients questioned the value of ESG and the sustainability, and they basically <laughs> say, well, I see ESG has no value. It becomes a cost of no benefit at all. <laughs> uh, we spend half a million doing a sustainability reporting and what, what we get from it, right? So I think um, for, for corporates, for business, the value, the idea of value creation really needs to be embedded. And this is something corporates really need to start thinking about from another perspective. 
with um, assessing how to assess the cost of no action and the value of action. For example, if you don't move your power plant or data centers from a location that is facing extreme high flooding risk, what would be the cost from business interruption? And what would be the impact to your revenue, right? And that's something mm-hmm. I think a lot of companies I would recommend to start thinking about because that's the what the investors really cared about. And for corporates, I think the least, very least they can do is to is to get the housing order. So start to conduct baselining, not just the emissions baselining, but also like any material topics relevant matter to your business and operation. So climate risk and water, a way management, anything, just get your housing order right now and where you are heading to. And once you get started, it's easy to improve the data quality through different types of tools in the market or improve your uh, assessment granularity. So so the information you gathered can better inform your decision making and build more resilience of your business. So that would be my my, my suggestions for corporates to do uh, at the moment. Mm. Yeah. To, to follow up um, or, or clarify a couple of things, mm-hmm. um, you mentioned the assessing the cost of no action. So is this yeah. kind of, uh, and, and I do believe this is quite key, obviously, but mm-hmm. uh, is this something that, you know, you you would go in and try to get your head around the client's business and then yeah. try to do some assessment? Is that is that correct? Yeah, let me let me give you a real life example. So of course, I will sanitize um, the 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 name of the client, but we we conducted a climate risk scenario analysis, financial impact quantification project for a power company. They own a number of solar, wind, hydro power plants across different regions, and through the exercise, we managed to identify a few material physical risk and then quantify a few the actual impact to their revenue and cost. And then during the process. We we also compare the cost of mitigating, adapting the risk, right? So how much they need to spend if they're going to really mitigating the risk. And the benefit or the profit really actually they can get from the power plant generated from power plant. And then we we compare these figures and then give these findings to the clients and they will decide whether it's worthwhile to really implement the mitigation measures or simply just move away the power plant or just abandon the power plant. So that's how we mm. manage to get the outputs and in, inform the decision-making in the board level. Yeah. Mm-mm-mm. I guess for a company involved in the production of mm-hmm. energy, the risk is pretty, pretty obvious. Um, do you have an example of a company not involved in energy production? Um, let me see. So for companies who, oh, sorry, just to clarify your question, they are not um, involved in energy production. So like companies from different industry, right? Yeah, could be like a real estate mm-hmm. company, uh, a manufacturing company, a toy manufacturing mm-hmm. company, anything yeah, else. Yeah. Uh, that can be a flip side. So, for example, um, that's also another real-life example from the project I've been working on with the iron a client from the iron and steel industry. So, they are um, producing low-emission steel products like HBI, and they manage to capture mm-hmm. more market because you know everyone's scope one and two are other scope three. So, through lowering the low the carbon footprint of its 
uh, products, the downstream customers who purchased their uh, raw materials or their low-carbon products, steel products, can actually lower their scope three emissions. So that's how they 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 not just only decarbonize their own uh, operations, but also support the decarbonization of the entire industry. So I think that's a yeah quite a good example uh, how the the company can not just mitigate the risk, but also capture some opportunities. Yeah. That's really a great example. On the same kind of subject of corporate strategies and and the transition, when you know you talked about the assessing costs of the no action and assessing the costs of action. So obviously there is a business opportunity. Is that something that you also help clients with? I mean, there's what I mean by that. To be very mm-hmm. specific about the question. I mean, there's an easy way to do it. I mean, there's an easy kind of example, which is you are manufacturing furniture for IKEA, mm-hmm. and IKEA tells you you have to be more sustainable on these four or five fronts. And then if mm-hmm. you don't do it, obviously you lose IKEA as a client. And yeah. if you do it, obviously you can also you know get clients similar to IKEA. So that's that's one of the more kind of straightforward. Um, examples but um, in your experience uh, where do you see the business opportunities from some of these corporates Mm -hmm. in 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 asia Mm. well i'd say if business really stay alert to the current upcoming um, sustainability related any rules or regulation and this would definitely help them save some cost i i know i use the word definitely so i probably need some figures numbers to back me up uh, which I don't have right now. Um, but I, I think especially for business sectors that are exposed to regulations like um, carbon tax or um, ETS, mm. uh, emission mm. trading scheme, or like uh, European C-band, the, the cross-border carbon tax scheme, it's very clear they can be more, how to say, cost-effective if embracing mm. more um, higher standard or um higher or enhanced sustainability practice. For for example, they can setting up internal carbon price or shadow price, uh, which is really a good indicator to inform better internal decision making when it comes to merge acquisition or investment. And they can easily adjust their strategy timely to reduce the cost. Um, so I can say that would be a opportunity for the business. And besides cost saving, if the business can stretch themselves a little bit more to identify some opportunities, and like I said, how to capture um, the potential market uh, moving forward, um, this is also part of our exercise when it comes to transition risk opportunity access. And this could also boost their revenue, either through access to the capital, like getting investment from foreign investment, or capture new market um like you, you mentioned the, the example, like IKEA, if you are uh, supply chain companies or SMEs who are under pressure from IKEA or other big clients who already made a net zero target, mm. uh, of course, their entire value chain, which means they need to reach uh, net zero across scope one, two, and three. So the downstream SMEs have to enhance their practice so that they can strengthen their license to operate, not just um, the existing market or existing clients, but they can expand to other market with more stringent policies if they can um, enhance their practice. Right, right. And and that's absolutely key, not just to their business, but also to the financing, right? Because um, banks, 
uh, also uh, have now net zero uh, 2050 or whatever a neutral portfolio alliance yeah yeah and so they're going to come up and say um well you know we are, we have new you know lending i.e green lending parameters and you better follow these parameters otherwise you won't exactly. get your uh, you know your working capital whatever um that, that's great what are um, in your experience so far some of the hurdles mm. that are that that you know corporates in their journey towards transitioning uh, are facing i mean you, you know one obvious one that mm. i can think of to preempt that example from you sorry is uh, is data right they have to yeah. all of a sudden collect a whole bunch of bunch of data which they had no idea they had to collect before so uh, apart from that, what what other hurdles do mm. do these kind of corporates face? Uh, well, I know I've been talking about regulation a lot, and this is one of the biggest drivers for corporates to to really transit. Um, but when it comes to hurdles, I think integration will be the biggest challenge because for corporates, they they when they do the transition, they need to go beyond just about meeting compliance or just for reporting purpose. They need to really embed the climate or nature into the overall strategy planning, meaning incorporate the existing governance, um, incorporate the governance of climate or nature to your existing governance, um, either from board level or management level, and also incorporate your climate-related or nature-related risk assessment or risk management process into your overall enterprise risk system. And that's something being really challenging because you can easily identify the risk um, and then assess the impact, but how to incorporate into your strategy, which has been running in your business for a long time and make it more um, integrated. And that, that that's something um, we got quite a lot of feedbacks from companies that they've been facing challenges. Another one is how to implement the targets you committed already. Yeah, now how to catch up the, the enhanced requirements because there's always more enhanced requirements coming up. And you can always say, I'm going to meet the higher uh, requirements and standards, but how to deliver it actually on the on the ground? Because at the end of the day, it will be your be used actually to deliver uh, your targets committed on the ground. So how to implement and make sure um, it's on track, um, all the processes on track will be re- extremely challenging. Th- thank you for that. That was, that was really interesting. And I was wondering, on a day-to-day basis, you know, when you when you go and talk to these companies, mm-hmm. do do you actually encounter some um, corporates that basically just just don't don't really understand it, just don't get it, not because they're stupid or anything, but it just doesn't come natural mm-hmm. to them. Obviously, you know, uh, we could talk about uh, an oil and, go- oil and gas company where an oil and gas company obviously uh, wouldn't immediately get it and wouldn't want to get it <laughs> but uh, is there some um, some examples of, of of you know how how you how they react and and how you you kind of try to explain it to them yeah so 
I think our role is to trying to get them see the big picture of why doing so and what they are trying to achieve. It's not just about reporting, it's not just about compliance or just to reduce, simply reduce their emissions, but how to make their business more sustainable. And if you frame that way, um, how to create value for them, then I think that you, you can get there on board. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also try to get um, corporations understanding that if they think it's tough now, Mm-hmm. They've seen nothing yet because as regulation is evolving, things are going to get a lot more uh, complex and a lot uh, harder, harder yeah. as, 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 as time goes along. Sh- shifting gear to, to kind of one of my last questions, and it's, um, uh, you know, can you please take out your uh, crystal ball <laughs> and uh, let, me, let us know, you know, what, what are your thoughts with regards to corporate transition strategies in the next 26 years or so, how how are they going to e- evolve? Well, ideally, I hope I hope there will be no more ESG. Like we wouldn't single out the the term ESG or sustainability because mm. every decision mm. you make or any penny you spend will be taking ESG into consideration already, and in the future. Hopefully, all the business can already embed the ESG into their strategy. So no need for our like consultants to, to tell them what to do or help them equip the, the mindset or skills because they already um, equip the, 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 the capacity or skills needed to deliver um, the, the strategy. So our role will be then accomplished. So, yeah, I think that that would be my my hope. And, and, and have you already seen... A mind shift or a slight mind shift in the last, you know, two or three years, you know, like mm-hmm. the way that you were speaking to clients three years ago, for example, mm-hmm. compared to now. I mean, has there been a little bit of a better understanding or things are still happening very slowly or evolving very slowly? There are changes I can see in the past two or three years, mainly dri- driven by the enhanced requirements or the regulation. So it's all because the mandatory um, requirements from either listed company, um, from either the stock exchange or um, security commissions. Mm-hmm. And I feel like they're doing this sometimes for the sake of doing this. Um, mm-hmm. so the pace is very slow because sometimes when we trying to convince them to upgrade the, the practice and they will say, oh, we already meet the standard, the requirements, then why, why doing so for what? Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's not to the, to the pace that it's needed to be to achieve the 1.5 or 2 degree trajectory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's great. That's great. Well, that, that was pretty much all of my questions, Summer, and I'm really, really uh, appreciate this incredibly interesting conversation. As you know, I'm, I'm, you know, my heart is very close to uh, this particular topic uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. Do you have any conclusions or takeaways for our listeners? Um, well, about 10 years, 10 years ago, I remember my professor back in the uni who teach environmental policy, he said something uh, I, I still remember. He said, if you don't feel scared, you don't think you need any protection. So that's why some inland countries or people living in land countries won't have the fear, the same feeling or fear of rising mm. sea levels, for example, mm. as compared with island countries. So mm. again, like with climate change, currently we've been undergoing, if your life or your business didn't get disrupted, 
you probably don't think you need to change any behavior or take any actions. And the science and the data is actually telling us that we will get disrupted. Well, actually, I'm a climate pessimist. Um, I don't know what will happen, whether we can bend the curve to meet the 1.5 or 2 degree trajectory. But instead of sitting there, do nothing at all, we might as well do something while we still can. I think you've got two tremendously important points. One is uh, it's really hard to get people to get their head around the whole topic if there isn't a fear factor. So I should say it's easier if there is a fear factor. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, you know, um, doing a little bit is a little, is better than doing nothing. And actually, that's very often when I, when I look at headlines from the media related to clean energy, we just say, oh, you know, uh, Last year, growth was 20%, but this year, growth was only only 18%. I, I just get really, really stressed out because, you know, it shows even in the media the lack of understanding that this is a, is a long-term game and one-year slight slowdown or one-year acceleration doesn't mean anything. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not a linear uh, kind of growth, right? So, uh, yeah. so I think all of your points are very, very important, and a uh, little bit of change is, is, is better is better than no change. Um, Samra, thank you very, very, very much for your time. I really enjoyed our conversation, and uh, I'm sure that we can do it again sometime very soon. Yeah, Abhiji, thanks so much for the invitation. I, I really appreciate and enjoy the conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you, Samra. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Asia Climate Finance Podcast. Please note that the Asia Climate Finance Podcast is presented for educational purposes only. All information in the podcast must not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. Also please note that the views and opinions expressed by our guests are personal and may not represent the views and opinions of current or previous employers.